Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast. Each week, your host, Casey Haston, Director of Recruiting at VIP, will bring you valuable insights from thought leaders, introduce you to incredible companies, and bring you tips for landing your dream job from our team of executive recruiters at VIP. And now, Casey Haston. Welcome to the We Are VIP podcast, a podcast devoted to adding value to your career or candidate search, brought to you by VIP. I'm your host, Casey Haston. I'm an executive recruiter, director of recruiting with VIP, and you're all around hiring guru. And I am so excited that you chose us to spend your time with today. So I don't want to let you down. And I have brought another amazing guest to share some wisdom with you in careers and just building better cultures and all the good stuff. So today on the show, I'd like to welcome Jeff Wald, serial entrepreneur, board member, best-selling author, keynote speaker, and investor. He is the co-founder of Bento Engine and Sonero dot AI, we're going to ask him to make sure I said that correctly, and author of The End of Jobs, Rise of On-Demand and Agile Corporations. Jeff is here to share his perspective on what the future of the workplace looks like. So Jeff, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it's so interesting. We went on this little journey earlier because I always like to try to connect the dots on how we got connected. And I think this was like one of those miracles or something because neither one of us can remember exactly how we got connected. Well, that is true, but it was some time ago because you have a huge backlog of guests. And so it took us some time to, to actually get this on the calendar. So my memory only goes so far back. <laughs> well, and you said something interesting when I said, hey, do a quick search of your email. And you're like, that's not going to work because you I, actually I delete yeah, I use my inbox as a to-do list and I get down to inbox zero. And it's funny because every time I do it, you know, I'm usually with people. I'm not that I'm on my phone when I'm with people, but I'll show people, I'll be like, hey, look. And they'll look and they'll be like, what are you, a psychopath? Like, <laughs> no. There are 7,000 emails in my inbox. And I say, look, I use it as a to-do list. If there is something that can be avoided or whatever, I delete it. And I am militant about it because that inbox it gets overwhelming, right? Yeah. And we get anxiety and just, I clear it. I don't clear it every day. I get back to inbox zero, you know, maybe once a month. But if it's in my inbox, it's to do. If not, it's deleted and it's gone. I've never had an inbox zero. <laughs> and if I had to delete my emails, so I don't delete them. I do move them from my inbox, but I categorize them. Sure. So a lot of people that look at like my files, on the side, like of my for my inbox, there mm -hmm. it breaks their head because I have so many different categories, right? Where I want to put stuff, it, but I feel like I have to go back and look through past emails so often that if I deleted an email, I would just probably fall down and die. I look. I will certainly save things into Google Drive so okay. that I can access them later if necessary. But I also am a, you know, militant unsubscriber to mm. things, which is really the biggest issue with Inbox Zero because I get friends being like, hey, you won't subscribe to my newsletter. To which I say, look, you're not special. A, I don't want to read your newsletter. And B, I unsubscribe to everything. So it's not just you. Well, and curious, did your friends add you to the list or did you opt into the list? 
oh, I opt into zero list. So they just, they just oh. throw me on their list. Yeah, that's not okay. <laughs> so, I mean, so, that, that's a totally, you know, valid unsubscribe. Gotta unsubscribe. You gotta keep it clean. Like, you know, if our inbox and we use these things as productivity tools, why do you allow things that are non-productive in there? You could, of course, create appropriate filters and Google's done an increasingly good job at that mm -hmm. of filtering for you. But if I don't need to be reading it, I don't even want to spend that nanosecond to have to look at it and delete it. Just if I can unsubscribe or I can filter it out, it's it's filtered out. So this is kind of your space. The So so you're the co-founder of Scenero. Did I say that right? Scenero? You did. AI And Bento so, Engine. Casey, at this point in my career, I no longer kind of run things myself. I have co-founded five different companies. The two most advanced are Bento Engine and Scenero.ai, uh, but there are a few others. And I co-found the businesses. I help get them going. I help fund them. And then much smarter people than me run them day to day and, and they spend their time down doing the really hard work, right? Like I get to do the fun stuff now and it's super, it's been fun. But Bento is a toolkit that helps financial advisors give better advice to their clients. And Scenero is an AI engine that listens to your meetings. When the meeting ends, it gives you a summary of the meeting. It gives you the action items and next steps. It gives you sentiment analysis, who was paying attention, who was engaged, who talked. Uh, and it gives you a lot of intelligence about your meetings because staying on this productivity theme, the biggest productivity killer we all know are meetings. Yes. Right? The meeting that could have been an email, the meeting where, why was I invited to this meeting? Well, let's try to make those more efficient. So tell me more about that, because I think that's really what relates to our audience. You know, those job seekers or those companies that are looking to build a better culture. What has been your experience? Why? Okay, let me back up. Number one, why did you create this? So... Scenario specifically was started by a former engineer at the last company I ran, WorkMarket. And he based it off of the WorkMarket meeting rules because, shocking nobody, I was militant with our team about meetings. And every meeting had to start on time. Every meeting had to have goals and agendas. Every meeting, you couldn't have your phone or your laptop unless it was a personal or client emergency. You had to end the meeting five minutes before the end. No meeting could be longer than a half hour without my approval, by the way. And you had to go to action items and next steps. And then the owner of the meeting had to send out an email right after the meeting saying, hey, here's gonna do who's going to do what by when. And anybody in the meeting could end the meeting if they feel like they weren't achieving the goals or get up and leave if they felt like they didn't have anything to impact the goal. And so in doing that, we massively compressed our meeting time and it made for a much more efficient place. But to your point, it made for a much more efficient culture right? Everybody there knew, wow, if I'm coming here, I'm going to be here to get things done, not just to talk, right? We're here to achieve things. I love your rule that you would allow people, I love all your rules actually, but that if somebody didn't feel like that meeting pertained to them, they had permission to get up and leave. Oh, look, this all started because I would just walk into random conference rooms at work market. That was the last company I ran. I'd open the door and be like, Someone tell me what the goal of this meeting was. If no one can answer the question, I was like, your meeting's over. Everyone go back to your desks because nobody knows why you're here. We're done, move on. And so eventually people came really close to understanding, you know, gotta have a goal for this meeting and understand why we're here. 
And I would tell you, I start almost every phone call out with, what's the goal? What do we want to accomplish? Let's be very clear about it because I want to be respectful of my own time, but yeah. I want to be respectful of your time. Like, why are you here? What do you want to get done? And if I can help you achieve your goals, I want to do that. But I will tell you this, Casey, it all comes back down to culture. And when I think about the 10,000 plus mistakes I made in building work market, number one on that list by a country mile was we did not have a defined culture. Mm. We had hundreds of employees and people did not know who we were, why we were there, where we were going. They just didn't. And when we were getting bought by ADP, one of the great companies on the planet Earth, you know, ADP had the 10,000 people doing diligence on us before they bought us. And one of them came to me and he said, you know, Jeff, we interviewed all of your employees and here are 72 different answers as to what is work market. My own people had no idea just the basic what is work market. And that is a fundamental problem for a hundred reasons. But that is something for all your listeners to think about. Do all of your employees know who your company is, your mission, why they're there, and where you're going, your North Star? And as an employee, do you know that? And if you don't, is that the kind of company you want to be at? Well, and, and I'm glad you said that because I'm sitting here thinking about so many things. But I don't think there are a lot of companies that are as you just described that know what their true North Star is, that can ha that has a cohesive culture. And I'm just thinking like with mine in particular, I think within the company, we have different areas of the company that think the purpose is something different. We're not all cohesive on what that culture is. Right. Look, that's those are areas of opportunity, right? It could be that everything's working great, but I can promise you it can be better. If everybody knows where we're going, if everybody knows why they're getting out of bed every morning mm. to come in and work together and get things done, you just have a higher probability of getting to where you want to go. And so it just becomes a question for leadership. What kind of company do you want? And, you know, there are a lot of answers to that question. I don't pretend that my answer is the best, but I can certainly say that if we look at the data, we will find out that companies that are very clear about what their culture is, about who they are, what they stand for, and then importantly, the policies and procedures that back all that up, because otherwise they're just words on the wall. Companies that do that have a much higher probability of having successful outcomes if they're startups or just have much better performances over time if they're public companies. That is completely clear. So you're a better recruiter, you're a better destination. It makes TA much easier mm -hmm. if you can show somebody, hey, here's our culture document. This is who we are why we're here and where we're going. This is what we stand for and the policies and procedures that back it up. This is what it's like to be here. That not only makes TA's job easier, but it makes retention easier. Absolutely. And I think that you do have the credibility to say what you're saying. <laughs> you're like, you don't have to believe me. Well, I kind of think we do maybe a little bit, at least, you know, give it some thought because you were recognized for being a part of the or you were recognized for being a part of the 100 most influential people in staffing by staffing industry analysts. So tell sure. me a little bit about your work in the staffing industry and the influence you've had on that space. Well, you know, look, I always find the staffing industry fascinating because this is how most people get their jobs. And, you know, for good or for ill, our job ends up being a large part of our lives. And it defines in a lot of ways who we are. Um, 
And so look, we built a company called WorkMarket. WorkMarket is enterprise software that enables companies to organize, manage, and pay their on-demand workers. And so as corporate America started moving to a more on-demand model, starting to be more of an agile corporation, thus the title of my book, Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations, they needed the software to efficiently and compliantly manage that transition. And our software became the de facto software for corporate America and corporations all over the world to manage their on-demand workers. And so as you think about the largest and most uh, fastest growing part of the labor force, meaning what is key to many staffing firms, it is that on-demand worker, that contingent worker, freelance worker that go by many names. And it also is the thing that staffing firms struggle the most with, right? Staffing firms love the placement of a full-time worker. We find you Jane Smith, Jane Smith joins your company, you pay us a fee. The engagement of a temp worker where we find Jane Smith, we payroll Jane Smith, you give Jane Smith work, but then you pay us and we pay Jane Smith is a less attractive portion for the staffing firm. The least attractive is the freelance worker, which is the person comes in, performs a specific task and then leaves. That staffing firms don't love. So our largest clients at work market, certainly in the beginning, were staffing firms. All of the global staffing firms used our platform to service their clients. All Interesting. of them. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, and I totally understand what you're saying, being in the recruiting space myself, because I, I, I don't even know how that would work with the freelance. Now we, we do have, um, we do the contract, but then we also do project-based, which I would guess would be as close to what you're talking about. Yeah. But I think where the difference comes in is that for our project-based, those employees are our employees. They're not 1099s. They're not, I mean, they are our employees. If they're not working, they're on the bench. So they are W-2s through and through, right? right? They get paid whether they're out on a project or not. So I think that would be the difference between your freelance, right? 100%. Look, freelancers have the benefit of 100% utilization. You're only paying them and you want to engage them. But if you're a staffing firm and you're working with Dell and Dell says, look, I need you to staff 5,000 different assignments every single day where a person's going to go in and work for a few hours as a staffing agency, you're like, I, I don't, I don't want that work. That's, <laughs> no, right? That's really, really, really hard. Yeah. But you want the Dell business, so you're going to kind of do what Dell says. And so you end up using WorkMarket, our software, to efficiently and compliantly build talent pools full of those people with the right certifications and licenses to do the work. You'll intake the work via API from Dell, and you'll use our API structure to spit all that work out to tens of thousands of freelance workers that know how to go perform work on Dell equipment all over the world. And you can do it super efficiently with our huh. platform. And that's one of many, many use cases. Why doesn't Dell just go directly to you? There are actually a host of reasons for it. And I will tell you about once every three years, maybe two years, a new leader of services would come in at Dell and he'd say, why don't we just own this directly? And I'd fly down to Red Rock, down in Austin, and I'd sit down with the team, uh, the Dell leadership, and I'd be like, well, it's great to be back because we've <laughs> had this conversation three times. Um, can you cut out your staffing firms and your other providers? And can you go direct to the worker? Of course you can. But that means you're going to own the service call, you're going to own the insurance, you're going to own the workers' comp, or you're going to own everything else. 
and you're going to pretend that you want to do it. But when the rubber hits the road, your legal department and procurement is going to say no. So I'm happy to go through these traps again, but I will tell you, I went down into that same conference room many, many times, uh, and Dell still uses the channel to provide all this. Staffing firms, third-party maintenance firms, and other firms that are amazing who all use WorkMarket directly. So interesting. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your book, The End of Jobs, Rise of On-Demand and Agile Corporations. You mentioned that it's a framework of how people should think about the future of work. So tell me a little bit about what people can learn from reading this. Well, I'll tell you this, Casey. I don't pretend that I've got a ton of answers, right? Like, there's this is way too complex a field for anyone to say that they know what is going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But what I can do is create a framework for thinking about it. And that framework is to look at history, is to look at the data in the world of work, and is to look at how companies actually engage workers. And if you're hearing people make predictions about the future of work that so blatantly don't look through those lenses, I'm not saying that they're 100% wrong. I'm just saying they have a very low probability of being right. And so, look, history tends to repeat itself. We all know this. So if I'm going to talk about the fourth industrial revolution, the robots and AI, I might want to study the first three and see how companies, workers, and society reacted to these massive changes in the supply and the demand balance because of a technological innovation that changed the productivity equation. Okay, is it gonna happen the exact same time the fourth time? Of course not, but is it gonna rhyme? Most likely. If I'm gonna talk about the changes COVID wrought with uh, remote work and things like that, should I at least understand the data around the world of work and how many people are capable of working remote? Or should I just jump into the market and say, well, 50% of the workforce is going to work remote and then have me sit there on the panel next to you, because this literally happened about a year ago. And I'll say, really, that's interesting. How do you juxtapose that with the fact that only 42% of the U.S. workforce can work remotely? Because most people work in manufacturing, transportation, logistics, entertainment, or other services that require on-site. And the person said to me, oh, I didn't know that. I said, well, shouldn't you know that? Shouldn't you know that data if you're going to sit there and make a prediction? So it becomes very important for companies to, for companies, for workers, communities, families, to think about what they're reading, what they're hearing about the future of work and understand, well, how does this jive with history? What's the data they're using to draw their conclusions? How do companies really engage workers? Because if we know those things, I'm not saying we suddenly get a crystal ball, Casey, far from it. But I'm saying we at least have a very strong rationale and therefore we have an argument that has a reasonable probability of coming true. And that's what we go through in the book and I put forward some thoughts, but more importantly is I asked 20 of the leading thinkers on the future of work, what their view was and what they think the world looks like in 2040. Interesting, interesting. So what was there, did any of them agree, number one? No, <laughs> definitively there was no agreement. I mean, there were flavors of agreement, but there were 20 very different opinions. And, you know, I gave them carte blanche. I just said, look, we're gonna edit for grammar and for flow and make sure you didn't plagiarize anything. Otherwise, this is your section. You write whatever you want. You've each got 2,500 words. Just as an aside, every single dude came in with more than 2,500 words and every single woman came in 
under 2,500 words, which I always thought was fascinating. I would have thought that to be um, the exact opposite. Well, for whatever reason, the women that I asked all followed the rules and the guys thought, I have too much important stuff to say. <laughs> so damn Jeff and his rules. And so, but all of them wrote brilliantly and it was super, super fun. And we created a future of work prize to see which one of them will be the most correct. Oh, what is the prize? Uh, well, the prize, I have the pleasure of serving as an advisor to the X prize, which uh, puts forward cash prizes to teams coming up with innovation. And so I borrowed from the X prize playbook and I put forward a $10 million prize for whichever one of these writers is the most correct. And so that cash is actually sitting in a bank account, not the whole amount, because we do have, you know, 20 or 18 years now. So interest adjusted. Uh, and so there is a voting mechanism that will occur on January 1st, 2040, and we will see who wins the money. Wow, that is fascinating. You did not share that with me before, that there's a prize. There is a prize. Wow. Is a prize. I, have, I have my guesses as to who might win, but I am not able to fully control it. So, oh, I have so many questions about that, but I need to move on. So that's it. We got to have another conversation about that. So, you know, with the change in technology, how can we ensure that workers are given fair opportunities with the rise of technology? It's such a great question, Casey. Look, there are so many answers to this. I wouldn't pretend to delve down any specific rabbit hole. We could talk about AI and inherent bias that comes in with AI. We can talk about the education system and making sure people have equal access to opportunity and the tremendous challenge that is inherent in that phrase. Um, what I would say is this, when we look at the trends over the history of work, there are a number of things that are, are very clear. There are very, a number of things, by the way, that are almost immutable. And that is that almost every year we create more jobs. Almost every single year, the number of hours we have to work declines. And over every, almost every single year, the standard of living increases. That has been true, again, almost every single year for the last 200 plus years. Now, over hold, the hold recent... on, can I interrupt you for just one second? Yes, yes, yes. The number of hours decline, I take issue mm -hmm. with that. Well, we may be side gigging and doing a bunch of other things at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and we may be sitting there and um, doing emails into the middle of the night. But that is, those are not actually clocked hours working because the people doing those are exempt workers, not non-exempt. So the hourly workforce is the only one we can track in terms of the exact number of hours worked. But the average American works 1,780 hours a year. That not the 2080. Not the 2000 that everybody says, right? 50 hours times, uh, 50 weeks times 40 hours a week. It is actually 1,780. Uh, the average German, by the way, works about 1,500 hours, and the average uh, worker in Mexico works 2,200 hours. Like, that's, that's just the data from the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. And again, over time, that has come down. Look, 200 years ago, the average person worked 3,000 hours a year in order to put a roof over their head and put food on the table. It was difficult. We are definitively better one of my favorite quotes about the world of work is we as humans tend to romanticize how work was. We tend to complain about how work is, and we tend to be incredibly fearful about how work is going to be 
even though every single year work does in fact get safer, better, and more lucrative. Like that is the human condition versus the data. Huh. And so how people choose to act or react is different. And I won't pretend again, that this applies to every single person. This is aggregated data across an entire economy of 165 million workers. So do some people work more? Sure, no doubt. But we're talking about the average worker. Gotcha. Okay, well, that would explain it because I'm like, I don't work 40 hours a week. There's no way in the world, you know? <laughs> of course, look, that is another very important lesson when we look at the world of work. You have to be very careful and very specific about what data you're talking about, right? You can't paint with a huge broad brush. I can mm. talk about them, but I should be very clear when I talk that I'm talking about the aggregated data. That doesn't mean subsection, this part of the economy subsection, this job type hasn't seen changes that maybe are counter that indication. Sure. We're talking about the economy writ large in most of the things that I talk about in the book. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Thank you for explaining that because I was just like, how did I get the short end of this deal? Why I'm working so many hours and nobody else is, you know? Um, and, but truly, and you're right, a lot of that's side hustle. A lot of that's choice. A lot of that's because if I'm not busy doing something, I simply get bored. I'm, I don't watch TV. I don't do anything like that. So I have to have like a million things going on. I have to have my mind engaged. So that's really more my choice than... Plus, I don't really work. I love everything I do. So I tell people I don't work a day in my life, right? That is true. But I do it that for 12 true. hours a day. A deeper conversation that you're not watching what is the golden age of content on television right now. I mean, there's, there are tremendous shows out there, Casey. You should be, you should be watching some. Like what? Oh, well, I mean, we might get into this into our Mars conversation. So oh, okay. I will, we'll come back to you. <laughs> okay, we'll save that one. Okay, perfect. Okay. So I'm going to ask you, um, I, I'm not going to be able to get to all the questions I wanted to ask you today, but I do, because, you know, I participate in mentoring and really I sit on an advisory board for a young executives committee. Um, awesome. And so I'm really curious, how can the Gen Z prepare for the future of the job market? Are, the, are they already prepared better than we are? Well, I'll say a few things on this. You know, when people look at how different generations respond to the labor force, they tend to think that there's a huge change afoot, right? This new generation can't do this. This new generation can't do that. They hop jobs more quickly. They need this for their employer. They can't, they don't have the same work ethic. Look, that, that may well be true, Casey, but I will tell you the data tells us the Gen Z worker right now is not vastly different than the Gen Y worker, than the Gen X worker that came before them, right? In 1980, the first year the Bureau of Labor Statistics started to segregate out the amount of time people stayed in a job by their year, by their age, we knew the average 18 to 24 year old stayed in a job about two years. If I were to ask you, what do you think the average 18 to 24 year old stayed in a job now, that Gen Z worker, you might think, oh, it's probably less. It's about the same, right? This data doesn't move that quickly. That's not to say that Gen Z doesn't have some differences and there may not be structural changes, but we should always be very careful when we talk about generational change because younger workers tend to just be different when yep. they're younger workers and then they tend to mature into older workers that have more experience that tend to stay in jobs longer. The last thing I'll say is, you know, 
the skills abatement is something that is new. It used to be you could go to university or a trade school or an apprentice program and you could gather a set of skills and that set of skills would serve you for an entire working career. That is no longer true. Mm -mm. The data shows us that now you can expect a skill to diminish in its monetizability in about four years. Yep. So everybody needs to be a lifelong learner. And I, I think Gen Z is more imbued with that notion of constant change and things like that because they've they've been dealing with it since their, be, their early days. But I think that every worker has kind of started to understand this and they have started to understand that they own their outcomes more because one of my themes in the book is convergence. It is not, I didn't call the book Rise of On-Demand Workers because I felt that everyone was going to become an Uber driver. More that the tensions that the Uber driver faces, data-driven HR, constant reviews, algorithms allocating work, total personal responsibility for healthcare and training and development, all of those things are permeating the full-time workforce. And so the rise of the on-demand worker means that every worker is going to start not becoming an Uber driver, but thinking like an Uber driver where they have to take care of their own training and development to our point around skills abatement. Wow. That's a really good place to leave it. That was awesome. I love it. I, I really do. And I love the fact that you talk about lifelong learning. I'm a huge proponent of that as well. You know, anytime I engage with conversations with my young executives, I'm like, what are you reading? Right. Tell me what you're reading. Tell me what it's about, you know, because I might want to go read that book. You never know. So you never know. Absolutely. So, oh my goodness, this has been a great conversation as I knew it would be. Um, but I do need to get to our VIP questions. So are you ready? Always. Okay. So if you were chosen to be one of the first colonists on Mars, what three things or people would you take with you? Well, the first thing I would take is my partner, Andrea. I was like, you know, I can't, I can't do things without her because she's literally the happiest, most wonderful person I know. So I'd want to make sure she's there. So I was always smiling. Uh, two is I would bring the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe because I am obsessed with Marvel movies and I love Okay, them. movies are not TV. Okay, that's fair. But they have a lot of TV shows too, which are pretty good, but their movies are much better than their TV also shows. Also a Marvel fan, I will admit. Excellent. Super excited for Black Panther 2, Wakanda Forever. Oh. Um, it's going to be great. Oh, you got to watch the trailer. It'll give you goosebumps. Okay, I'll go um, watch it. I just watched WandaVision and then uh, Doctor Strange too. Brilliant. You got to watch WandaVision to get the... My That's son true. keeps me up on the timeline. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Uh, the third thing I'd bring is probably my favorite food, which is the Ben & Jerry's uh, peppermint uh, cookie ice cream. Although I did learn that what they do at different ice cream companies, I believe Ben & Jerry's included, is all the ice cream that's bad batches from other flavors, they dump in and then they put the peppermint flavor in and the peppermint flavor is so strong, it masks every other flavor. And so peppermint ice cream is generally the rejects from other batches. That but is I'm gross. okay with it. I'm okay <laughs> with that. It's still delicious. The peppermint cooked chocolate, the peppermint, you know, whatever cookie is just my absolute favorite. So I'd bring gallons and gallons of that. Okay. Favorite person, favorite content, favorite food. There you go. I love it. So, and who knows, maybe Thor will show up and save you on Mars. He usually does. He does. He's the man now that he's back in shape. Um, <laughs> 
So what is one thing you do each day to set your day up for success each morning? Uh, I exercise in the morning. Like when my feet hit the ground, I am, you know, immediately into push-ups, squats, sit-ups, uh, and then hopefully other stuff. Sometimes I have time for it. Sometimes I don't. But I have that routine that no matter what, I will get that basic five-minute workout in, blood pumping. And, you know, it's like sometimes I my feet hit, I'm so overtired. But when I hear the shower turn on, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I haven't done the things. Oh. And I just go and get them done. And so no matter, again, if it's just five minutes, just something to get the blood flowing, to get going uh, is super important for me. I hear that a lot. I hear that a lot. And I, and I think that that's a lot of the, you know, successful people that, and that's why I asked that question is because I want to know, you know, what is it that helps you be successful? And it's different for everybody, but movement, movement and usually quiet time and a reflection, sure. those are pretty strong answers that I usually get. So I would say whatever it is, Casey, you just got to develop the habit, right? If you yes. do it for 60 days, it becomes a habit and successful people tend to have those habits with positive behaviors. I don't yep. pretend that it's easy to create that habit, but we are what we do and we can choose what we do by choosing them to repeat over and over again and create those habits. Well, and even going a step further, then you can start habit stacking so that Completely. you can get more done. Have you read the book Atomic Habits? I have not. Check it out. Atomic Habits by James Clear. It's amazing. amazing. And he talks about the habit stacking. So I think Love it'll it. be right up your alley. So, okay, final question. If your life's work was being summarized in a news article, what would the headline be? I can only hope that it would say he helped. Mm. That whether it is people that come into my orbit, employees, colleagues, friends, um, that if I was able to, that I helped. I helped them with a kind word, I helped them with advice, I helped them with an introduction, uh, that I think we're put on this earth to serve our, our fellow humans, our communities, our country, and anything I can do to help anything uh, of those three, I do try to. I don't pretend, and I certainly don't help, you know, any random person, right? Like I can't, I don't have the capacity to help everyone, but I certainly hope that it would say he helped uh, with the subheadline of, uh, for those he loved. And I, I love the people that are close to me in my life. I love my community and I certainly love my country. Well, I will go out on a limb and say, you've certainly helped us today. So I really appreciate your time. How do people find you? Because I know they're going to want to. I will tell you that uh, I bought the domain jeffwald.com in 1998 as the internet was starting. And then it, it sat barren for 20 plus years. And uh, just last year, I finally put up all the content with the different talks I've given and the books I've written and uh, companies I've invested in and things like that. So jeffwald.com now has all things Jeffwald related. Wow. And you've had that thing for 20 years. That's a lot oh, of foresight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a lot of $19 payments each year with me <laughs> going, oh, am I ever going to do anything with this? I can't give it up because one of the other Jeff. What if? Is. Yeah. I was actually so I able to get my name as a domain. That's awesome. With a dot .com even. I was shocked. Got to have the dot .com. You got to have the dot .com. So, but those dot .coms have gotten expensive lately. That they have. Yeah. That so. they have. This has been amazing. I, I knew it would be, like I said in the beginning, I just, 
we've got to have more conversations because I know there's more we can do together than just this podcast. So Jeff, the last thing I want to say to you today, you are a VIP. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. This was super fun. Thank you. Thank you. And that's a wrap for today. Join us next week here on the We Are VIP podcast. We'd love to know how we can help you be a VIP. To find out more, log on to wearevip.com.